today is Thursday, July 28th, 2016. This is episode 36 of Garbage. Uh, we kind of figured you guys know who we are by now. Absolutely. Tonight is going to be everything that you would expect from Garbage. A bunch of random, interesting, and random, boring topics that we're going to talk about. And um, a bunch of obscure things, so we'll see if we can weave it together. So I have some follow-up from previous episodes. Uh, the show we did about uh, how we manage passwords, I was mentioning that I used 1Password and their like web interface that uh, dumps an HTML file uh, into my Dropbox folder that I can access uh, on a web browser from OpenBSD. Mm-hmm. And they have just changed 1Password uh, on the Mac to, I guess that file is, they're not updating it anymore or it's broken or something like that because... Um, they announced it like on their forums, and then I, when I go to the file on Dropbox, it just gives me like a JavaScript error. So that's uh, not working for me anymore. So then I started looking at uh, how to mount my Dropbox folder on OpenBSD so yeah. that I could just, because uh, there's a command line uh, utility just called 1Pass that can read the 1Password files and uh, in Python, and then just like it's... Uh, you know, you do like one pass Google or something and it'll dump out your Google password. Mm-hmm. So that requires uh, this Fuse, um, I guess, library or Fuse whatever utility to uh, talk to Dropbox and it's written in Python. So I tried to get that working and it required a whole bunch of changes to actually work. Um, but I got it actually talking to Dropbox and mounting the directory on OpenBSD. So you can just do like ls Dropbox and it shows all your files, uh, which is kind of cool. But there's some kind of error deep within the bowels of our Fuse implementation that is uh, broken. <laughs> so I'm having to dig into that. And uh, why is everything always not working right yeah it's that's that's kind of what i've been running into lately too everything i go to do i'm like oh i just need to do this and then you find two other things that are required to do that and they lead to seven other things each and i just go work on my camper yeah i guess that's uh yak shaving Mm -hmm. um yeah so i like you know checked out the git tree of this fuse utility and then tried to run it and it wouldn't it needed some python modules that we don't have in ports so then i had to install those um which uses pip i guess is a thing you have to install pip i don't know why it's not installed by default with the python package but anyway so i got that working and then the fuse like python library like didn't understand what openbsd was it only has code for linux and freebsd right so i had to add a bunch of code for OpenBSD and some other little stuff. So maybe if I get that working, I'll try and upstream those changes, but it looks like this code is all abandoned upstream anyway, so maybe I'll turn it into a port, but I don't really want to maintain a Python port. So, yeah. So you're talking about Python ports, and um, we have an, an application at work that I wrote in Python, and... The package management tools that I used are outdated, and you can't 
like nothing that we use in the application is supported by those packaging tools anymore. And um, the web framework that it sits in doesn't even exist. It got merged into some other project. It looks nothing like um, the project that it came from. And you can't even find like the original version any anymore of the web framework. And then there's these other libraries that um, we did some weird stuff where we pulled them in internally and managed to them and made fixes to them and made improvements to them that were upstreamed, but then upstream started to make changes that required a newer version of Python, so we couldn't track the upstream version after a while, <laughs> and it was it's turned into a dependency hell, and you talking about using pip was one of the things that uh, spurred that thought on, because we were using uh, setup tools and uh, like easy install and stuff. Mm-hmm. And now all the stuff is wants to live in pip, pip install this, and all that kind of other stuff. So, <sighs> joy. Yeah, um, I don't like Python. Like no. I was editing the files, and like I'd get these syntax errors, and it's because uh, Vim was trying to auto indent with a tab, but this file right. had spaces, and then another one has like spaces instead of tabs, and. Um, I don't know. It just seems very finicky, and I don't like it. Yeah. So that's all I had to say about Python. Um, Follow-up from last week's show, I was talking about the Z-Wave controller that was garbage, and then I bought a USB stick that can kind of do all the Z-Wave stuff mm-hmm. on the stick itself, but then if you plug it into a Unix machine, you can talk to it through a serial device and like respond to Z-Wave stuff happening on your network. So that USB thing arrived last week, and I, um, it must have a, like a, one of those coin batteries in it, because when it's unplugged from any computer, you can push a button on it, and it lights up. And then you can like put that next to your Z-Wave device and tell your Z-Wave device to like go into pairing mode. And then the huh. stick like does all that stuff on its own without being plugged into anything. Um, so that's kind of cool. And then when you plug it into an OpenBSD machine, it shows up as a U modem device. Cool. And then that attaches a UCOM device uh, underneath it. And then there was some like giant C++ uh, userland program that I found, uh, Open Z-Wave, something like that, um, that can just talk to that serial device. And it has support for this particular USB uh, Z-Stick that I bought. And it's... Um, supposed to be able to like you know just talk to it and parse all the packets and like show you stuff and you can do whatever you want with it after that but it doesn't work in OpenBSD. i don't know why um when you plug it in and you try to like open the serial device like ttyu0 uh-huh. uh, with like cu or something it just kind of hangs um it doesn't like hang the whole machine it just like hangs the process and so like when I try and run, like I got the, all the code compiled, which was kind of a miracle because it's like a whole bunch of code. It's kind of surprising. Um, I got it all compiled on OpenBSD and then when I run it, it would just sit there and do nothing because it wasn't, it was like blocking on reads from the serial device. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know if it's with our U-Modem driver or the U-Com driver, um, but I plugged it into my... Uh, chromebook running linux and it works okay so that's uh promising i guess i just need to dig into that driver and figure out 
why it doesn't work, but it's just yet another thing that doesn't work. And it's kind of frustrating to always have to dig into driver code and make all this stuff work because it doesn't work properly. It's, it's strange. It's a two-edged sword. On one hand, you have the source code and the ability to go in there and fix it and make it work. And on the other hand, you just want things to work. <laughs> yeah. Digging into so many Linux kernel drivers recently, it's uh, it's getting kind of frustrating. I was yeah. like debugging their ACPI stack to figure out how they were writing to a particular uh, memory address in response to some piece of AML code, which meant that I had to turn on every possible flag and or every possible level and every possible like um, layer of debugging that is possible in the Linux kernel for mm-hmm. the ACPI stack, which dumps like an insane amount of uh, stuff to the kernel log buffer that you actually have to like boot with a special flag that tells it to increase that buffer to like 64 megs. Um, 64 megs of output? Yeah, so it dumped like a huge amount of stuff, and then I had to, you know, comb through it and figure out what it was actually doing, and then compare that to OpenBSD, and it turns out it was doing the same thing, so the problem (laughs) wasn't there. But uh, yeah, so that's all I have for follow-up. Yeah. Uh, Do you have any follow-up? Um, I, well, I was going to talk about um, some application development that I did. It's not really that exciting. Um, not too long ago, I was reading an article about making the, uh, getting the Qualys TLS score like 100% in Go. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And, uh, I was reading through it because I had, um, uh, uh, an application that I built and I wanted to see like what they were doing differently from what I was doing. Uh, the benefit was, is that they were kind of explaining some of the stuff um, and essentially, you have to put together specific cipher suites and turn off uh, a few things in order to get this 100% score, which isn't really shocking or, or interesting. Um, but I was trying that in Safari because I wanted the iPad to work with it, and I learned a couple things about that. Uh, the one that was interesting is is that um, the, what do they call the security engine on um, iOS? I forget the name for it. But anyway, uh, that engine requires um, perfect forward secrecy. Mm -hmm. So you have to support that, which it turns out uh, that was like built in out of the box for this particular Go application. And the other interesting thing that I found was um, in HTTP2, they have like a blacklist of all these cipher suites and they're like you can't use these with uh with TLS. And I don't know whether they're weak or known broken or what the criteria is for that. Um but one of the things that they ran into is they said, well, people who go to implement TLS in uh HTTP2 can't get the server and the client to agree on a protocol, so you must support um ECDHE something 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 128 and what's funny about that is um that is a cipher suite that 
um, Qualys says is weak. They said you have to have 256-bit keys, and so the HTTP2 protocol needs to be disabled in this particular Go application in order to get the A-plus score because HTTP2 requires a weak cipher suite. And I was like, this is really crazy how all this stuff is being specified these days. Well, that score is like not the best possible, like the highest security, right? It's just the the most compatible with everything, and so that's what gives you an A+. No, it's not compatibility. In fact, the A-plus score disqualifies quite a few pretty commonly used uh, platforms and devices, Uh, Hmm. so it is supposed to be one of the better security ratings that you can get. Hmm. Um, Actually, I can pull it up. The um, SSL Labs is the site that offers this service, and they have like a PDF that talks about um, what they're trying to do. They score four different areas, um, protocol support, key exchange support, cipher suites, and they basically grade each of these things. And their PDF talks a little bit about, you know, certificate quality and all that kind of stuff and what... um, the SSL aspect of it covers and what it doesn't. So we can probably leave a link to that in the show notes if you guys want to have a closer look at that because they they did a good job of um, you know outlining what that stuff is. Um, but what this particular article was talking about is basically Go's implementation of TLS and what you get out of the box. And um, so the couple interesting things that they had to do out of the box that the score out of the box was an A, which was pretty good. Um, they go for an A plus with um, HSTS, which is basically um, a header. And what that header says is that um, you want to enforce strict transport security. So basically all requests for HTTP get changed to HTTPS. So that's the first thing that they change, and that is um, just by adding a header. So in Go, you have access to the header. You just add strict transport security, max age, and include subdomains. And then they get the A-plus score. Um, And basically, this blog post talks about um, stopping here because at this point, you start to drop client compatibility. Um, But they go on a little bit further, and they whittle down uh, support for certain protocols. Uh, The initial score is 90%, which is pretty good. Um, But in order to get 100% in that, you can only support TLS 1.2 or above, but there is nothing above 1.2. So um, all you do in the configuration in Go is you build a TLS config and you specify the minimum version to be TLS version 1.2. They run the test again, and they get a little bit better uh, score, 100% on the protocol. And then they look at the key exchange next, and um, the SSL rating guide that is scoring this um, requires that your key or Defi-Hellman parameter be greater than or equal to 9046 bits. So um, they basically go into a little bit about how to build a proper key pair for your server, which uh, they use one of the standard libraries in Go, or I used one of the standard libraries in Go, and there's like, in the crypto folder, there's a utility that lets you generate some generic certs for your server and a PEM encoding and put them out there. 
and um, and then yeah, you just set the curve preferences in the um, in the configuration for your TLS server, and that bumps your score up for the key exchange to 100%. And then one of the things that I was doing before any of this is basically picking a set of cipher suites that I thought was acceptable. Um, this is one of the things that we've seen in, in previous attacks on the web where um, the server supports a good strong uh, cipher suite and crypto that we would consider trustworthy, but there's also fallback or legacy mechanisms enabled that a malicious client would fall back to an attack because they're weak or broken or whatever. Um, so you basically build this list of cipher suites. They list four of them in here. They are all um, ECDHE, either RSA with AES and SHA-384, or they're ECDHE, ECDSA with AES-256, uh, SHA-384. And um, I was doing two of those four that they have listed there. And they talk a little bit more about um, the reasons why they don't allow HTTP2 um, even though it was enabled in Go 1.6. Um, basically, that comes into play here because they uh, want to allow, or the HTTP2 mandates that you allow TLS, ECDHE, RSA with AES 128, 256. And as a 128-bit cipher, it doesn't work. It doesn't cut the mustard, apparently, for the SSL Labs folks. Um, and then disabling that in Go is basically um, another configuration on the server itself, on the on Go's uh, HTTP server, and you basically specify TLS next proto, and you make a little map, um, and you you know specify a couple parameters here, and that disables HTTP two from being the default. So there's some. There's some trade-offs in, um, you know, I guess in getting this perfect score because a lot of folks like some of the HTTP2 stuff, and then they have a little excerpt here. But um, at first, I, I didn't think it was working with Safari, and I couldn't figure out why. And it turns out I was, I had the um, uh, iPad connected to one wireless network that was firewalling the traffic between the iPad in my server where I was testing this stuff and uh, I spent a lot of time going hmm I wonder why this doesn't work and then all of a sudden I was like oh my gosh I can't even uh, get my firewall configurations correct <laughs> and then uh, Safari was very happy to visit the site and everything worked really well and I continued like building this app so this is like um, the Bulma CSS and the Riot.js um, tools that I was talking about on many many episodes ago and one thing that I found is I had some um, I was using materialize at the time and I wanted to get away from this and I just haven't ripped it out of this app yet but I found that um, something that I'd done with materialize did not want to work in Safari so I had to rip it out and uh, I lost no sleep over that obviously but uh, yeah Riot works great with Safari and my application seems to be working well so um, Safari, I've, I've heard like people say, you know, you got to be careful with Safari compatibility and, you know, support for certain JavaScript things, but 
I didn't really notice anything uh, different than any other browser uh, building stuff. So I'm enjoying it so far, and my app is responsive and works well, and I'm actually kind of excited to try that debugging technique that you were talking about where you have um, the JavaScript debugging happening on your Mac or something like that mm -hmm. uh, while you're pulling up the app in your iPad or iPhone or whatever. I don't remember how you need to pair the iPad with the Mac. Mm -hmm. um, but then it'll just show up in Safari's menu. Um, sidebar, talking about pairing the iPad... I bought a car, and I went to the dealership to pick it up, and the guy said, oh, I'll help you pair your phone, and I didn't think anything of it. I was like, sounds good. I'm a technology guy. I'm pretty sure I can get it paired. And he went through the process with me, and it got to the end, and it said pairing failed. And he said, well, let's just try it again. I didn't think anything of it at the time, but every time since then that I've had to repair my phone, it always fails on the first time. I never paid any attention to it. So one morning... I uh, got in my car and I was like, you know, I should try and pair the iPad and see if I can play some music and, uh, you know, see if there's any difference or whatever. Do you know the iPad paired on the first try didn't have any issues with it? <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's so and, and I actually find that indicative of most of the Android devices that I have um, where Bluetooth won't pair with my heart rate monitor or it won't pair with my um bluetooth like cadence sensor on my bike and i've noticed things like the audio stutters now when my phone auto rotates the display all sorts of really quirky things that i think should just work i think that's really kind of poor on uh the android device i mean this is, this is like the flagship device you know this isn't mm -hmm. like the six-year-old thing so a little disappointed in that. Uh, suffice it to say, my iPad pulls up YouTube videos and they start playing much faster than my phone and they don't stutter when the screen auto-rotates or anything like that. And the Bluetooth <laughs> works better and all these things. And I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, but I'm just noticing all these little things that start to add up. Do you watch Mr. Go uh, Mr. Robot? No. Yeah, it's a pretty good show, but they. Uh, I was watching an episode today and they show a close-up of the phones that they're using in the show mm -hmm. and they frequently use android phones and anytime they're like scrolling it's so laggy and like stuttering uh, it's just kind of funny you only notice that because you've used both i i mean I guess, for me I don't know. it's pretty blatant yeah yeah <laughs> well i mean i use my android device and i'm like oh man this is fantastic look at how smooth this all goes and then you know I talked about it after a while. I'm like, man, my phone doesn't feel smooth. And then they have Google I.O. and they're like, hey, look at how smooth our scrolling is now. And I'm like, you broke this so that you could premiere this new <laughs> improvement. Uh, but then you use an, an, an Apple product and, you know, the iPads and the iPhones, they just work. Like everything feels so natural and so fluid. Um, but until I used them, I was kind of like, yeah, okay, it's a little bit bad. But then you use those other products and you're like okay yeah this is pretty pathetic what kind of car did you get um a subaru outback i've actually had it for a couple years now oh that you may just go on no cool um let's see was that all for follow-up yeah kind Any of more? i think 
I don't know if people find that interesting or not, but those web applications and, and doing that kind of mobile web application is kind of neat. And I have another thing we'll talk about maybe after you uh, cover a little bit of news. I just did the uh, Qualys SSL test on uh, something that I maintained, and it gave me an F. <laughs> oh, no. Because uh, uh, it's just one of those stupid open SSL padding Oracle things that mm-hmm. like doesn't really matter in real life, but yeah, apparently I haven't uh, updated SSL for that or open SSL or Libre SSL, whatever it is this week. So uh, I got an F. You can do that this weekend when you're bored, not fixing kernel things that don't work. <laughs> uh so I guess some news, OpenBSD 6.0 has been tagged and um, the like final packages have been built mm-hmm. and developers are doing some tests on those final sets and the tree is kind of unlocked, but not totally. Not totally unlocked. This is the phase where we can modify files but not add new directories or new files. Right, which means I can't get my new driver committed. Yep, that's a bummer. You actually had a few posts to the mailing list over the past week or so. Uh, There was one earlier yesterday or later yesterday that you posted as well. You want to talk about that? Uh, Which one? Well, I thought you posted that. Light bar thing. The light bar stuff? No, I didn't post that yet. I posted the ambient light sensor driver ambient light sensor that's what it was and uh yeah so some of my other diffs require other diffs to be committed first so i can't really do anything until these things start to get to com- uh, committed ac pals aci acpi pals <laughs> yeah, acpi pals yep uh yep that's the new driver for uh just detecting Pixels. how much light is in your room nice are you um, going to sell that to the NSA, all that data from OpenBSD? Yeah, I'm going to integrate it into my uh, XDimmer program so that it can automatically dim the screen when it's uh, when you're in a dark room and such. Awesome. Uh, but to do that, you need control. Uh, you need to be able to read. Um, well, no, that's in uh, syscontrol hw.sensors. But the diff to for the keyboard backlight uh-huh. is off of WS Cons CTL, and if you're logged in through X, uh, and not a console, you don't get ownership of certain devices in slash dev right. that WS Cons CTL tries to open because that's how you manipulate those uh, or send those um, ioctals to. Uh, set and read the backlight right so i uh sent a diff to tech to uh assign those devices from xdm when you log in because it's basically the same as the etsy fb tab file that controls which devices you get uh, ownership of when you log in on the console so i figured it should probably act the same when you log in through xdm on the console yeah um, but Theo is worried about it and giving me guff. 
Well, I did it. I did it the really lazy way. I actually changed my key mapping before I was using F2 and F3 um, to dim the keyboard backlight, and now I mapped it to Alt brightness, like F6 and X7, F7. So it be, uh, mimics the behavior in Chrome because I kind of got used to it in Chrome. Hmm. But I'm just doing like uh, spectrum config, and I'm like do as this thing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you can do it with, you know, sudo or do as, but I think right. it should work without that. So yeah, I have it running sure. on my laptop with these changes, and it works. So uh, I would like it to work for everybody by default. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah, so then uh, once I can commit the ACPI PALS driver, um, I will send the diff for the ACPI TPM driver to fix suspend and resume. Yep. And then uh, probably my touchpad driver uh and then the light bar well yeah i don't think anybody cares about that but um are you still um are you still working on the hp chromebook uh i have been slacking yeah i haven't made any time i'll tell you in a a little bit here what i've been working on instead (laughs) all right because um i mean if you're not like do you think you're going to work on it? Or Probably not. No, I'm being a Are you gonna no. like return the machine or No, no, I'm I'm I love it. I'm gonna keep it. Oh, okay. I just uh am not making time to work on it right now. Okay. Because I didn't like you're probably going to be the only person that ever uses the trackpad driver on it. Because yes. you're gonna be the only one that still has the machine. Well you and Ted you, but he said he's not gonna run OpenBSD on it. Oh. Um because if you're not going to keep the machine, I'm not going to keep mine. Because I was only going to keep mine to write that driver and then get rid of it. No, I love the machine. I think it's fantastic. I love the display on it, too, especially. I have a lot of people comment on it, and they're like, man, this looks really nice. I'm like, I know. Did you see Ted Yu's review of it? He said the display no. is not very good. Oh, he doesn't like anything. Let's see. <laughs> TedOnAngs.org, right? Dot com. Ted Yu. He's a company. So he he doesn't like the display. We said he like it doesn't look as nice as people think it does, but I thought it looked fine. I loved it. Uh, HP Chromebook thirteen. That's not the same thing we have. Uh, what? Oh no, I guess it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay. Oh. Now the display, 3200 by 1800 mega QHD or whatever. Sounds impressive. All right. By default, the display is set at 1600 by 900. Huh. Does it just look crappy in Chrome OS? I don't think it looks crappy in Chrome OS. In fact, I'm sitting here like with a... I'm going to find my magnifying glass because I (laughs) solder stuff all the time. I can like... I don't see that at all. Like, I don't see what he's saying. Because, like, we've never even seen it in the full resolution in OpenBSD because of... No. Core boot. Resolution. I don't see. Here's the X1 by comparison. Wow, he... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he really lays it out there. But the square pixel grid. So he's talking about... um, the way they got away with having such a high resolution 
in a very inexpensive laptop, which is very true, is they used um, some like kind of cheating techniques. The way they staggered the pix the pixel layout in it is is what's mm. yeah, huh? But doesn't that come down to like the font renderer? Because I think his X one is running Windows, and his Chromebook is running yeah Chrome OS. I mean, mine. I I don't know, man. I'm looking at mine under high magnification right now, and I just don't see the same thing at all. I don't see it in the terminal. Let me see if I can find out how do how do I get this? Uh, how do I see all these settings that he's looking at? Resolution. Here we go. Display settings. What does this say? Yeah, sixteen hundred by nineteen hundred. Sure enough. Let's see what it looks like. Oh, that looks way better. <laughs> what did you change it to? <laughs> Native. Oh. Yeah, you can't read a thing. <laughs> yeah, he's got a point there. Uh, Chrome OS does not support the high-resolution display at all. <laughs> wow, I'd never done that before. Huh. Even 2400 by 1350 is too small to really use. Well, Ted is a very smart guy, and I really respect a lot of the stuff that he does. I, w I really enjoyed my Chromebook uh, at the resolution that they gave it, and I think it looks really crisp and clean, but he does have a point about it. Um, you know, Chrome OS just does not have the, the support for the high-resolution display or the high-pixel density that's in this particular display. Oh well. I still like mine and I'm keeping it. I'm using it. I love it. I think it's fantastic. All right. Me and my naive viewing. <laughs> uh speaking of Android, did you see that uh new feature they added to the phone app on Nexus devices where they're uh -huh. like recording or not recording but like keeping track of all the phone numbers that come in? And then if it looks like it's a spam call, it says spam on the screen, like when it's ringing. No. But it's apparently only for Nexus devices. I don't know why, but um, that URL has uh, some info. Okay. Let me look at that. Well, that that's kind of interesting. Um, so you can, if you're getting a call from like, Hello, you can save money on car insurance. Yeah, it'll like tell you. it'll just say suspected spam caller while it's ringing. Nifty. That's actually not a bad thing, is it? No. Um, I mean, I guess unless you're worried about Google tracking all your phone calls. <laughs> I mean, they have to be like sourcing this stuff from somewhere. Well, are they making this an API now? Because it's Google, uh, of course not. <laughs> Well, I mean, um, some of the stuff that they did in Chromium, or maybe it was Chrome, the browser, they uh, they made an API available, and then everybody was starting to build those, you know, particular malware detections into the other browsers, and then they closed-sourced it or turned off the API or something like that happened. So I figured maybe at least par for the course that they would start with an open uh, API and let people integrate it and then they would turn it off <laughs> no they still have that um google malware api 
Yeah, it looks like it. Safe browsing lookup API. Oh yeah. Well that yeah. um that goes the reverse way where you download those lists, if I'm remembering correctly. You download those lists to your machine machine and then it does all the comparisons uh locally. So yeah. you're not actually like sending the URL to Google each time. But I would imagine with this thing it it can't it wouldn't download them. Yeah. That it would just send it to Google. Yeah. But who knows? Huh. Interesting. Yeah, that's I I mean I use Project Fi, so I guess they kind of already can listen to all my call data and stuff anyway, so Yeah. <sighs> well, it's it's a an improvement, but at what expense, really? <laughs> all right, well, that was all I had on that uh, Android thing. Okay. And I guess that's all the news that I have. Yeah. No, I don't think there's really anything uh, else to talk about as far as news goes. Um, I do have a couple other sort of technical, but not really technology-related, but I don't know. We'll go there anyway. Since we were just kind of like yelling at Google, um, one of the things that I've never done is I've never built a an app for like Chromium in the App Store or whatever they want to call that. And uh, you and I talked to last episode about the quadcopter firmware, and I said, man, it'd be really cool if I didn't have to download another application in Windows to flash the firmware on my electric speed controllers through another Chromium app that never works. And um, someone approached me and they said, hey, uh, I'm looking for somebody to build something. And I said, well, that sounds useful. And uh, he said, I want to expose a flashing utility in the existing Chrome app so that, you know, we don't have to download another application or we don't need another Windows machine on top of the Chromebook that most people take to the flying field in order to flash our firmware. And um, and I said, wow, that sounds fantastic. And the way this works is there's a bootloader firmware on your speed controller. This, I don't, I, I'm listening to myself say this and it just blows my mind. We have a tiny little... Uh, 32-bit CPU on a speed controller that controls the speed of a motor on a radio-controlled quadcopter. And um, anyway, this thing has a bootloader on it, and the bootloader, um, basically the way it works is you send some commands to it, and you can put it in a programming mode, and you can write the entire firmware for the speed controller through that bootloader so you can essentially never brick it. And um, most of the time, the firmware itself isn't what you need to change at the field. You're not going to go there and say, well, I'm going to test out you know, four or five different firmware versions. Um, some people might change between BL Heli, which is one of them, and Simon K, which is the other one. And they're basically just different algorithms and different um, ways to update the the way they drive these particular gates for the motors turning on and off. And so anyway, the guy said the common case is, is that we want to change the dampening of when the motor is told to slow down. So you spin up the motor and it's spinning at a certain speed and you, you say, oh, I want to do a particular maneuver and it'll actually dampen the motor at different rates. 
and it'll make the aircraft more responsive or less responsive. So this is what we would normally control through this Chromium app. And as it is right now, you have to have a Windows laptop that runs this BL Heli interface, and then it talks through the clean flight interface because clean flight is what um, your speed controllers hook up to so you plug a usb cable from your laptop into the flight controller the flight controller gets instructions to send to each speed controller to change settings on the firmware um, and this guy basically figured out which portions of the firmware need to be changed to do things like affect the dampening or the throttle response or the um uh, there's a there's a ton of different settings but he figured out where the firmware needs to be written to change all these settings and in doing so he basically figured out um, that we can write the new firmware from scratch write the new bootloader what commands need to be sent and all that kind of stuff through clean flight and he asked me to build the UI piece of it, and that's what I'm kind of doing. And he's got a command line interface going now. So you can go to the command line interface and type in commands and talk to the speed controllers, read their settings off of there, and uh, set their settings through the command line. So we've kind of proven the hard part, I suppose. <laughs> and this guy is like... Um, you know, he's like, oh, I'm worried about the UI piece. I'm not very good at that kind of thing. And, you know, he has the hard thing of, like, reading hex and <laughs> dumping firmwares and, you know, reverse engineering what gets changed when he writes something with BL Heli, you know, or whatever. So, anyway, we're going to try and put together an update to the existing Chromium app so that we can, you know, use that for the flight controller. And then eventually for people who don't use this particular uh, app called clean flight uh, we want to have a standalone version that you can plug into the any what is it usb to serial or whatever particular thing uh, adapter you plug these right into the speed controller you pull up this chrome app it sends the commands to the bootloader the bootloader writes the areas of the firmware and updates the settings or rewrites firmware or whatever you want to do. So that's what I've been working on with uh, Chromium. So that's going in the store? It is in the store and hopefully the new application will go into the store as well. And of course this is all for my Chromebook because this will not work in OpenBSD. <laughs> I see. I think that's a feature, though, that it doesn't work in OpenBSD. <laughs> yeah. But it does solve the problem of not having to boot into Windows or whatever, because the BL Heli software suite is um, Windows only. There's no Mac, there's no Linux, there's no Chrome OS or uh, anything like that. So that's what I've been doing. Nice. Um, what else should we talk about? Well, you have a topic posted from uh, Adam Walk, right? Yeah, he was saying uh, he wanted to hear about self-hosting. Now, does he mean like a platform can self-host? Compile the compilers, compile the kernel and user land tools? I think he was talking about hosting your own servers. No. 
<laughs> That's much less exciting. Yeah, uh, your voice changed in that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always tease my son, and uh, I say, "Have you ever seen the internet?" And he's like, "No, I haven't." And he, you know, he thinks it's like some complex, you know, data center. And I point to the machine in the corner of the room. I say, "That is part of the internet." <laughs> He, he doesn't know what to make of me or my statements about the internet. When we have company over, I show him sometimes, I'm like, this is the internet. So do you want to talk about self-hosting? What do you host your stuff on? Um, I have a web application server that I run on a Intel machine, and I'm kind of slowly migrating things to my APU2 because it uses a bunch less power. And the idea here is, is I'm building some Go applications that I can interface. I want to build um, something for my mobile devices that I can just shoot pictures at, either in a zip file or multiple at, at once, back them up and be able to look at them at a later time. And I'm you know we've talked before about getting away from the Google services and the cloud services and things like that. And, um, of course, when we have pictures, we want to share them with mom and grandma because they want to see the grandkids and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I host some web stuff. I'm going to eventually start to host, um, some communication programs. Maybe this shouldn't go in the show, but, uh, <laughs> I, it's one of those things where, you know, we're always sending texts and chatting and, you know, I talked about not wanting to get another phone because I don't like the communication things over all that stuff. And I'm, I'm thinking that I probably will write my own. That, um, happens over SSH, um, just for family use, not for like my buddies and pals, you know, I'm not going to like, Hey, go download this app I wrote so I can talk to you and that <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's what I host myself. No email. I don't do... Well, that's not accessible from the internet, right? Your servers at your house? Yeah, they are. Um, I use it as kind of like a, a hop-off point. Um, I host some web applications there, like my talk is hosted there, and my little fancy not fancy web application that I've been kind of putting together is hosted there. I host a couple websites there. You have a static IP? It's mostly static. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. What do you use for DNS? Um, I use, I have to dig my own host. I upgraded LibreSSL while you were talking and it went from an F to an A plus. Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> Poor LibreSSL. It's such a good thing. I am using... Who am I using for DNS? I can't even remember. Oh, uh, Joker. Oh, okay. Whew, man, why couldn't I remember that? I, I think we literally bought a domain while we were on the show, and I can't remember that. <laughs> but yeah, they're doing my DNS stuff. And um yeah, I think that's it. I want I want to host maybe a soft client just to see what that's like. 
some sort of like SIP server, maybe asterisk at some point in time, just to see what it'd be like to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Hosting asterisk sucks. Yeah. That's what I heard. Basically would have to like leave it open to talk to your device out on the internet. But that means that any device can talk to your asterisk server. So you're going to get hit with, uh, scans like way more than SSH scans. Yeah. It sucks. Um, yeah, I host all my stuff on dedicated servers through a whole bunch of different companies. I don't really know what he was looking for us to discuss on this topic. (laughs) Well, as far as, I guess, self-hosting, when you're putting your services out on the internet, I think basically that draws the line between using some sort of, like, solution. Uh, For instance, you can buy a SIP client and you can have them set up, you know, account user accounts for a call center, or you can run your own asterisk server. Um, I'm bringing this up because we just like did a cut over at work. It was um, a migration of, I don't know, I want to say like 30 phones or something like that. But um, if you host that particular service yourself, you can control it. You can see what's going on. And I've been pulling more and more of my data out of like Google Docs and Google Photos and putting it on my own particular application. And I'm just building them in Go. I built the photo application in Go. I have a small little wiki thing in Go that I use to like, basically, I use it like a a notepad. I just type things in there and, you know, kind of forget about it. But I've been using it to like paste URLs because I search for all this stuff and Google's like, hey, man, we keep track of all your bookmarks and links and all that stuff. But I can never can never find stuff Mm -hmm. that I looked at before and I'm like oh I want to go research the um, SBUS protocol that I looked at six months ago and it spends it it takes me like another three or four days to get back through all the information and find what the research that I found the first time it's like Google's trying to keep me out of the same things that I was looking for before every time I go back and then so now I just have like a text file I pull it up and I'm like SBUS information here uh, here's the circuit board for a particular spectrum module that you can put in the back of this particular transmitter. Here's the component list you need. And that way I don't even have to go back to the website. It's just in my text file. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as self-hosting, I actually think that works quite a bit better for most things. And I guess that there's you know things like settings on phones that don't get backed up and contact lists on my phones that don't get backed up. But for a broad portion of things that I spend a lot of time researching. I love that. I think that's a fantastic thing. Maybe I need that. Maybe that's the app I need to, uh, get in everybody else's hands because I have, I've actually had a half dozen people ask me, Hey, how do you do this stuff? And I really just, it's like me dumping it like Dropbox almost where you just like put a file with a whole bunch of information in it and you stick it out there and then you can get to it from anywhere. That's literally what this is. Hmm. Like a gist or a paste bin. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. Yeah. So that's my self-hosting. I should I should start doing my own email too, but I think I'm going to replace email with a more generic chat kind of thing. Like it's not texting, it's not chatting, it's not email. It's just communication. Um, that's that's what my goal is anyway. We'll see. 
then how will you get emails? You gotta have email. I'll have to write a gateway that <laughs> takes my emails. No, I mean, it's just a try. Like, I had this idea in my head. Um, you know, with SSH, when a, when a client connects to a server using a key, you know that the client's I mean, with, with a pretty high amount of certainty that the client has not been, is not some imposter because it took some sort of cryptographic, uh, exchange in order to make that communication work. And I just want something that basically does the same thing for the communication between me and another person. And I don't want it to be as complex as GPG and have all those the overhead of it. And I feel like I could probably do it. Um, if I wrote my own thing basically from scratch that kind of has the same type of underpinnings of SSH. And that's what I want to try and do. So every message is basically like, I won't say signed and encrypted, but it's like validated by the clients because you know that only the client can generate this particular thing. And it just happens automatically. And uh, we'll see if I can get there. Yeah, but you still got to have email. Like, you need an email address because not everyone would be using your app, right? That's right. Yeah, this is not meant for, like, an email replacement. This is just meant for me to see what would happen if I had five people who wanted to talk to one another. And basically, instead of having, like, an email address, I would have, like, my, uh, let's just say it was... Um, uh, not signify, but reop. I had my little reop key and I, you know, said, Hey, here's my thing. And they would say, Oh, here's your reop key and that kind of stuff. And it just worked, but it, and it, but it wasn't an email message to a person. It was just a correspondence or a communication is really what I'm trying to get at. You know, I, I think I'm making the problem worse by blurring the lines between SMS and chat and email all into one. But that's really what I see in my head. I just want to like shake it out and see what happens with it. Do you know of Pond? No. You should look at Pond. It's written in Go. And it was written by Adam Langley. Oh, Adam. What did you do to me, Adam? Oh, I like Adam's stuff, actually. Two years ago. I guess he's not really like working on it much anymore, but he wrote a bunch of code. So he's written an entire server client infrastructure for sending messages, and he's he's making making a distinction between uh, communication from non-contacts with identifiable contacts, and I guess it's got all sorts of like parsing and yeah it seemed more like a a chat thing than like a pgp thing where you just right. like encrypt a message and then send it off it's yeah. more like a, a centralized kind of thing because you can run huh. your own pond server but yeah as he says it's not you shouldn't you know rely on it for anything but and and this is this is like a different approach. See, he wants to have many pawn servers across the internet mm -hmm. that, you know, can send messages back and forth between one another and avoid 
uh, it looks like being able to uh, be an imposter, you know, like, hey, I'm so-and-so and and all that kind of stuff. Mine is basically a hub and spoke where my server, you know, you'd, you'd get an account set up and I'd have a, you know, a team of 10 people and they all wanted to communicate securely and all that kind of stuff. And they just, you know, whether they're doing it through their phone or whether they're doing it for, through their browser or a command line or whatever it happened to be, they would just start messaging and it would have the ability to just essentially communicate between the people in that particular group. And it would ensure that no one is, you know, sending in messages that are, are like, um, impersonating someone else. But at the same time, it's not a communication tool for like a collaboration across multiple different entities. And I don't know that that necessarily solves anyone's problem, but I I wanted to try it out for some strange reason. It's just been in the back of my head, and I'm like, I wonder if this would be useful or cool. And I always thought that it would, and I want to build it and see what I find when, when I do build it. Interesting stuff. You remember the Google Wave stuff, right? I never used it, but I remember uh, when it came out, and people thought it was neat, and then they shut it down. Yeah, they shut the whole thing down. and But there, you could have, like, your own Wave server and send communication and collaborate between Wave servers and stuff, mm-hmm. which was pretty neat. But, uh, again, I don't know that... Look, looking at the success of that, I, I feel like I know where my project would end up. Um, but it seems to solve a problem that I have, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> Adam, you got a very boring answer to your self-hosting question. I think we should have talked about uh, Linux versus BSDs and self-hosting compilers and operating systems. That sounds like a much less interesting discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. Maybe I've just been uh, working with compilers and stuff too much lately that I don't want anything to do with them. It's understandable. Anywho, this was a weird show. It was weird, but I I don't know, like, it's still kind of interesting stuff. I think that if we hired some professional writers to kind of, like, put the show together instead of us, you know, just writing down our ideas, maybe it would have more flow. But maybe that's kind of the interesting part about our show is that we cover a, a wide variety of topics. Yeah. I mean, it's all technology. It's just being used in such crazy vast different ways yeah i guess if this were like our jobs we could do research and like actually come up with lots of good things to say but when just some random topic comes up between us it's not like we can have a whole uh spiel ready to go no i don't think so we should probably uh offer up a link to the donation site for the OpenBSD Foundation. Why? Since there was some hacker news uh, comments being discussed today or talked about today. Yeah. Uh, did it always say that on the home page of the foundation site that it is a Canadian not-for-profit corporation? Because <laughs> I feel like that's what those people were complaining about on hacker news. Um, I think it has. The guy said that it wasn't a non-for-profit and that that was like throwing up these roadblocks that prevent people from donating. I feel like those are the kind of people that, um, 
when you like come up with an idea, they're like, oh man, you should totally build that. I'd, I'd pay for that. And then you build it and then they're nowhere to be seen. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're just making up excuses why you don't want to give me money. Just why don't you just yeah. say that? But anyway, the OpenBSD Foundation is a Canadian not-for-profit corporation, which means that it is not tax-deductible in the United States. That's right. But that's not really a good comparison to the FreeBSD Foundation because they are a U.S. non-for-profit. So that's right. that is not so that it is tax-deductible in the U.S. But if they were based in Canada, or if you were a company in Canada you'd be in the same situation. Yeah. The OpenBSD Foundation sponsors project development. Um, They have a whole bunch of uh, activities that they've contributed to over the past few years. We've had a lot of different donors. Um, Basically, this is not your way to get a tax deduction. This is a way for you to pay for software that you use and you make use of indirectly or directly and keep that development going and pay for the uh, various different things that it requires to run that project. Uh, I think we have, what, like 60, 70 developers right now that are active on the project. Um, And when we coordinate hackathons, money goes into that. There might be small, simple projects that are funded so a developer can go work on that and isolate themselves and get a particular um, driver written or imported or all that kind of stuff. So support them, pay them, don't look for a tax deduction, just support the project. It's that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. What's with that? You need a, it has, has to be tax deductible for you to donate. How about you just donate cause you use it and benefit from it. Yeah. Jerks. Well, I mean, looking at all the stuff that we run, um, OpenBSD is one part of this, but the uh, OpenBSD Foundation supports OpenSSH, which everybody uses, OpenBGPD, which most people use or benefit from, OpenNTPD, which is another one of those things where everybody's using that technology or should be, and OpenSMTPD, LibreSSL, which has got to be probably one of the more drastic undertakings in the in the more recent history that the project has undertaken and it's i mean i think it's had a very positive impact in the ecosystem open source and cryptographic and i think that uh one of those things that um you know really shook a lot of cages when the open ssl folks uh had some issues and wanted funding and uh, had a lot of things they needed to clarify, and now we have LibreSSL, which is not funded or driven as a uh, NIST or FIPS kind of project or consultancy. I don't know if that's quite a good way to say that, but uh, they're unbiased, I guess is a good way to put it. So LibreSSL has uh, objective an objective look at cryptography rather than subjective, opinionated you know, choices. And uh, last but not least, Mandoc is also another project that falls under the OpenBSD Foundation. So um, Ingo works on that stuff, and he does a great job. So chances are you know how to read man pages. You're benefiting from all those things. So, (laughs) um, yeah, send them some money. 
yeah, you can do that at openbsdfoundation.org. Org. Uh, so I guess that's it for this episode. If there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about, uh, you should tell us early in the week so that we can prepare for it instead of like on a Thursday morning. Uh, yep. You can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM or through our website at Garbage.FM. Brandon, how can people reach you? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod. And you can also find me on Google+. I'm on the web at JCS.org and on Twitter at JCS. Goodbye. Insert garbage into the trash can here. Yes. It was it was weird um, at work this week. I was remember I think I covered like three or four shows in a row. Uh, go routines in Go, and I was like, oh well, first you need this, and then you need that, and then I'm using some map, so I need some safe map. Well, I found another bug in my safe map, and I felt like an idiot. Uh, there is I, I have about four different implementations of me using the safe map with Go routines. And one of the things that I found today was I was running this process over and over again, and I was like, I was trying to trigger a bug that I thought was some other place, and I saw this panic, and it said multiple writes into the map at the same time, and I thought, that can't be, there's no way. And I looked at the stack trace, and it was happening in an insert into the safe map. I'm like, there's no way, it just can't be like this. And of course, everybody already knows what it is. Um, I was passing my safe map in to a function and instead of passing the pointer I passed the data in and so of course um, you know it it doesn't work because it creates some uh, copy of the data or something like that instead of just you know locking on a particular object and uh, you know with everyone having the reference to the same pointer that obviously works. You grab the lock, say, yep, this data type is, or this data structure is locked, insert things to it and unlock it. So I spent probably half an hour this morning just going, why doesn't this work? It, it's only in this one particular case that it doesn't work. And then I realized instead of defining the function in line in this particular case, I was passing the data structure into another function. And I just shook my head. <laughs> it, it, I guess it wasn't obvious because I create my variable of the safe map, I guess is the data structure that I created. And then in the function, I just call safe map dot insert. When you define the function in line, that works fine because it knows what it is. As soon as you pass it into another function, you have to make sure you pass the pointer. That was the, that was the gotcha. I see. All the sharp corners that I have to slice my arms against before I decide I am not that good of a developer. <laughs> <laughs> but now you're that much better because you found the problem and fixed it. And you know yep. not to do that in the future. Yep. And I was helping another coworker this week. He, he said, I don't understand why we do this. And I looked at this function and I was like, why do we do this? And um, and then it was one of those things where, like, I wrote that? 
why did I do that? And what happened was I wrote a function that happens probably like five or six times throughout these various different applications that we have. And uh, he put it into a function and refactored all the code to call the function. And then I looked at the function. I was like, well, I wonder why he did it like this. And then I'm like, wait, I wrote the function that he put in there. And what I was doing was I'm in an array of byte arrays. And I was reading up the byte array to a particular set of data. And then I was reading down to another set of data. And the way it works is basically the data is such that you have a, a header and a trailer on each transaction set. So I'd read up until I found the footer of the previous transaction set, and I'd read down until I found the header of the next transaction set. And obviously, that makes no sense, because if it's the first transaction in the file or the last transaction in the file, it just doesn't work. And I was like, why did I write this? Or I said, why did he write this? This makes no sense. And then I realized I wrote it, and I was like, what was I thinking? Like, I don't know. That was the other gotcha that I had this week that was pretty funny. But the good news was is he put it in a single function, so I just updated that single function, and then six or seven different places worked much better. Nice. Do you have tests for that stuff? Yeah, we do. The... The tests are coming along nicely, and that was actually the guy who found it. He's like, I have a single transaction in my test, and this isn't working. Why do you do this like this? And I was like, why do I do that? I didn't do that. He wrote this. <laughs> <Get> <laughs> blame. Yeah, I know. Mercurial blame, because yeah. we're using HG at work. Nice. Yeah. It, it was a good, though, good thing, though. We're finding a lot of things now that uh, reading code exposes, and I think that that's a good thing. We're finding a ton of things that are really important all at once yeah and that's kept me busy i haven't been a, able to do the other things that i really enjoy you know like i want to power on this emmc and learn how that works in acpi and i haven't even had chance to look at how all, how all that stuff would work yeah 